Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? Hope you're having a fantastic day today. Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. Once again, my name is Chase Krauss. Thanks for joining with us. Uh, joining with us. That didn't make any sense. Thanks for joining me today to continue our Bible study on First uh, Thessalonians chapter Dose, chapter 2. Um, so, as always, before we jump in, let's get into that Greek word of the day. It's a word you are probably super familiar with, uh, at least what it sounds like. Maybe you don't have an idea of what it means in the traditional sense, but we're going to get into it. So, the word is uh, martos in Greek, uh, martor, uh, it's a different word, martyr, right? The word martyr. Um, so, the thing with this word is a lot of the times, in the, at least today, we th- when we hear the word martyr, we think of somebody who uh, died for a cause, right? usually a religious cause. But that was not the sense of the word uh, back in antiquity, back in Jesus' day. So the word martyr was uh, somebody who witnessed to something, and it was had a very legal connotation to it. So it was a legal witness in a defense or in, in a trial of some kind. So the martyrs of the early Christian church uh, gave a witness or gave a defense to their faith through dying, right? So this, this word was adopted by Christians as those who witnessed to the faith, who testified to the faith in that kind of almost in this like divine courtroom of like the Colosseum, right? Uh, so you, you, were, you were put on trial in a very literal way a lot of the times, these Christians, and they were martyrs. They were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to the joy of the gospel, to their faith in the resurrection of the body at the end of time, and that the fact that God would deliver them, either whether if not physically, then spiritually into, into heaven. So just a little tidbit on the Greek word martyr, which is in our text today. So we are jumping into chapter 2 today. So we'll see how far we end up getting, and uh, we'll go from there. So let's dive in. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was fully treated at... Sorry, totally skipped the line. (laughs) All right. For you yourself know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Let's stop there. Let's walk this verse by verse like we've been doing. So, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. So it was not in vain. Very simply, that our work, Paul's work, was not fruitless. There was fruit that was produced, namely them, right? They're, they're a church, so his main goal was definitely accomplished. I mean, he, he founded a church. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst, midst of much affliction. So what happened at Philippi, Acts 16, we read, uh, Paul was actually scourged, amongst other things, at Philippi. And, and just 
brief history of scourging, this wasn't a casual thing. This wasn't something that, you know, you'd get hit a few times and then move on with your life. No, a lot of people died from scourging. A lot of people, if you ever studied the Passion, you might have heard this before. But if not, so quite oftentimes scourging in the Roman Empire, there was a set number of times, I think the number was like 43, is 43 lashes. And quite often they use what's called a cat of nine tails. Not always, but quite often. Which is basically a handle with uh, nine leather straps with pieces of glass or bone or clay at the end. And a lot of times the reason those sharp those pieces were at the end was because it would have better grip the flesh and it would hurt more basically, right? You got to remember the Romans perfected torture. They could get somebody just to the brink of death and not kill them most of the time to make their suffering last as long as possible. So Paul was, Paul was scourged. He was flogged just like Jesus. So elsewhere in, in Paul, when he, he says, I bear the wounds, I mean, he's talking literally, he, he has scars, I can't even imagine how, how scarred and disfigured Paul must have looked by the end of his life. He'd gotten stoned. He got flogged. He got shipwrecked. He got beat. I mean, this dude took a whooping for God several times. And yet, despite that, his, his preaching was not in vain. You read that he suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We had boldness in our God to declare to you. So even though we got shamefully treated at Philippi and they moved on to Thessalonica, they had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel, the euangelion theu, the good news of God in the midst of much affliction. Euangelion theu. Remember, this, this, isn't, this is something, this is a term that the Romans would use a lot of the times. So at the end of the last chapter, we, we read Paul kind of like subtly, like just like kind of punching Caesar in the face over and over. This is another way he, he's undermining Roman rule. Because in Roman antiquity, that euangelion, the good news would be when Caesar conquered an army or conquered a nation or with, you know won some major battle, a messenger would come and announce the euangelion Caesar, right? The good news of Caesar. Uh, that namely that Rome has triumphed over its enemies well paul is adopting that language and saying no it's not euangelion rome it's euangelion theu god right um it's euangelion that god has won the victory and he got scourged he got beat at philippi and that rather than you know undermining him paul or discouraging his faith rather it built him up gave him more confidence to go to thessalonica and proclaim the good news of God, that God has overcome, that Jesus is raised from the dead. And th- once again, once he got there, like we've talked about, he, he encountered affliction. And he says here, you know, he declared to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. The Thessalonians did not like Paul. They, you know, they, the, the Jewish community in Thessalonica did not like Paul. They ran him out of town, literally, right? They literally ran him out of town. Yet in the midst of affliction, in, in affliction before and after and during and all these things, Paul never stopped proclaiming the good news of God. And reading this in a, through a spiritual lens in our own lives, we have to now consider how often we let ourselves get discouraged from proclaiming the good news of God. 
how often do you and I encounter trials and sufferings and persecutions and allow ourselves and allow the evil one to discourage us? We don't use persecutions and hardships and fatigue and suffering. Most of the time, we don't use that as fuel for our fire. Rather, we allow ourselves and the enemy to lose hope, lose faith, and lose love, potentially, through mortal sin. Hope and faith and love are those virtues, Paul talks about at the beginning of this letter, that fuel our fire. And that's, not, that's something you have to talk about with God. If, you know, how do you approach hardships and struggles and persecutions that life is just going to throw at you? And God's going to allow to happen in order to build up your faith. Think of you know, Tobit. God wants to test you in fire, like we're here in Sirach. Gold is tested in fire. God wants to see his reflection in you. It's going on in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. That's a very interesting line. In antiquity and like today, you had teachers, traveling teachers. Today it would be maybe like traveling inspirational speakers or something like that, I don't know. But you, you just like in, in antiquity today, you have people who use their intellect, use their ability to teach in order to manipulate. So Paul's saying, our appeal does not spring, so the root of it, the, the, the motivation for them, isn't from error, namely they're not teaching something that's not true, or impurity. Namely, Paul is talking about there are teachers out there who use their ability to teach in order to sexually manipulate their students. It's a very intense example, but Paul's obviously aware that there must have been, either within the Jewish community or maybe false Christian community, that were using their ability, their, their willingness, I guess willingness is the wrong word, their ability to share the quote good news, the false good news, to sexually manipulate others. Paul's saying that's not it. It's not from error. It's not from impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul was not trying to trick them in order to just like get some money or something like that. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Evangelion, the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. They didn't come to be approved by men. And that, I think it's pretty obvious when you look at Paul's life, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, read Paul's letters. You don't, Paul didn't do what he did for luxury and comfort. No one continues to do something without knowing for sure that it's truth after being beaten and flogged and stoned. and all. You have to have a serious belief in what you're doing to persevere after those hardships. So we're on to verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have de made demands as apostles of Christ. 
but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So this is a very interesting section. And I something I, I didn't really know before I was reading uh, Nathan Eubanks' commentary on this. So the, the verse 5 is pretty self-explanatory. What do I mean by that? I mean, uh, so for we have never came with words of flattery. So they weren't trying to, you know, flatter somebody just to receive money or payment, as you know, nor with a pretext or an excuse for greed. Right, they're not teaching. They're not spreading the good news of God for greed or to be approved by men. It's very obvious, very obvious in, in Paul's life. Paul was a tent maker, right? He he worked so he wouldn't have to burden the Thessalonians. So the interesting part is uh, Nathan Eubank actually argues that th- this translation is actually mis uh, misinterpreted in the sense of the periods and commas in the right in the wrong spots. So because remember, uh, well, you, you don't know, but. So in, in Greek, ancient Greek, there was no punctuation mark. So the punctuation marks have been added by us as the English interpreters to help us break up the thoughts. But in Roman and so in Latin and in Greek uh, writing, there was no punctuation marks. There was no periods. There was no exclamation points. There was no question marks. There was none of that. Uh, so even in, in Greek text nowadays, if you see a comma or a period on the Greek text side, not that you... I don't know if you own a Greek Bible or not. Um, so I have a Greek-English one that I use for all my study. There are some periods and commas and stuff, but those are all added later, right, by people who eventually developed them to understand. But Nathan Eubank actually argues that this has been mispunctuated. Uh, Why? Because in verse 7, we have this weird translation and this weird uh, punctuation and weird kind of heat. Paul changes his analogy kind of quickly. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 7, we read, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That word uh, gentle is not agreed upon in uh, ancient times. So some ancient manuscripts, some of the oldest manuscripts we have, have the word for gentle, but others have the word for infants. So gentle and infant. So what does this matter? Well, this matters because if the punctuation was wrong, or if if the current punctuation is uh, verse 7 is that one sentence, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So it'd be weird for Paul with this punctuation to say, but we were infants among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Why is that weird? Well, because Paul would then be referring to his to the Thessalonians as his mother. But later on, he talks about how he is their father or brother, right? So in, if this punctuation is correct, the word gentle, which we have in some manuscripts, would make more sense. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So Paul would be the nursing mother being gentle with her children in that case. But if infants are the words to use. You need to move things around. You need to put a comma before verse 7 after Christ. And so, but we were infants among you, period. But we were infants among you. So if we read it like that, starting in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were infants among you, period. End the thought, done. 
that could make sense, right? Jesus says, become like children, right? You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you become like babes. And that would totally fly. As Paul's saying, we were like infants. We, we were um, humble among you. We, we had a state of humility. We did not seek glory because infants, children don't seek glory. They just seek love. They just seek to be with their family. And then if the period falls after, but we were infants among you, period. Then Paul, which he does elsewhere in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, where he, he changes his analogy quickly. It's a little weird still, but it, the logic follows. So the, the sentence would start, start like, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That, and so he switched place basically. Right, you see this in Romans too, where Paul kind of switches his place in the analogy, where all second he was talking about how he's humble like an infant, but then he's talking about how he is a nursing mother. Uh, the word is uh, trophos; it's a wet nurse. That's the that's the term there for uh, nursing mother, namely that he isn't their true mother in this case. Namely, God is; he's a wet nurse, right? He's coming in to help. Um, so that's Nathan Eubanks' kind of approach to this. It's interesting. I don't really know where I fall um, with this because, like I said, it kind of really depends on if you uh, like the ancient manuscript of infant or gentle because they are two different words. Uh, but they're only the only difference between these two words is literally one letter. So it's understandable that there was some scribe who just, it was a typo, right? It's a typo. The Greek word for gentle is agene themen, agene themen. And for infants, it, it, you just, you would take out one of those letters, you change it, you change a vowel basically. Um, so it it's tricky, right? Um, and is that something that's super, I think, important to the theological context of this letter? Well, no, you can still get a lot out of the letter. You still understand it pretty well. Uh, but it is interesting to know that there was a potential typo or there is a typo, I guess, because we have some ancient manuscripts that say infants and some say gentle. And we don't know which one Paul wrote. And we never will, really, in this whole heaven, right? But, but this doesn't mean, just because there was a typo, just because there's two potential words, it doesn't mean that this isn't inspired scripture. Now, oddly enough, uh, there's, grammatical, there's grammatical errors in the book of Revelation, in the Greek, uh, John wrote it. When you read it in the Greek, there's parts, there's a few different verses actually in Revelation that the grammar just doesn't make sense. Like it's bad, it's bad grammar. It's It was written by somebody uh, like John who wasn't a scribe or Pharisee, didn't have perfect Greek grammar. Doesn't mean it's not inspired scripture. God works in spite of our failings and weaknesses, Right. So I, I, you know, I think Nathan Eubank gets into, you know, where the punctuation falls and they kind of minutia a little bit. The reason I think it's kind of cool, uh, one, it's kind of interesting to see is like, well, is it infants or is it uh, gentle? You know, is it, is that one sentence, verse six and seven with a period before like a nursing uh, mother or is it not, you know? Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm, putting, I'm a bit neutral to it. Um, there's a lot of Bible verses or translators that keep it the way I read it the first time, namely that verse seven starts a new sentence it says gentle, and he says like a nursing mother, where Paul's a nursing mother. But there are other theologians who argue that the punctuation should fall right before the word like, the period, and there should be a comma before verse 7. Um, so give us some thought. I don't know. 
see what you think. There's there one of the things I think that a lot of times people desire, and even I did too when I when I first started studying scripture, I wanted definitive answers to some of these questions. Like, no, like what is the right answer? Uh, but there's some things that the church doesn't speak on because it's not like a salvation issue. This is not uh, this this word gentle or infants. The, the analogy does not like affect our view of salvation. Um, it's it's an analogy. Paul's basically either way saying uh, to be humble and gentle, you know, like an infant or whatever. Um, so give us some thought. I don't know. Re-listen to that little section of me explaining if you need to. Um, and come to your own conclusion. Have your own opinion. It's totally cool to have your own opinion with stuff that's not salvific issues when it comes to scripture. So let's let's go let's go on now with uh, just finishing um, this first part of the chapter two, verse eight. So being affectionately desirous for you, what beautiful words, right? Affectionately desirous of you, you were ready to share with we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, Evangelion Theu but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, so a lot there. But a few things. Paul gave himself, gave of himself. Gaudimet spes, right? Man finds himself through a sincere gift of self. Theology of the body, J.P. St. John Paul II uses that line as a hermeneutic, as a tool to interpret scripture, and would therefore you know, spring forth the theology of the body. Man and woman, he created them. Man finds himself through a sincere gift of self. Paul knew this. Paul knew that his mission, his purpose in life, his end goal of proclaiming the good news of God that Jesus Christ raised from the dead and he is king and Lord over all. It could only be accomplished in him after he gives of himself. He didn't just give the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. We, Paul found himself through a sincere gift of self. Not that he didn't know who he was before this, right? He's been doing this for a while, but Paul knew that that was his mission. His mission wasn't just to talk to people about God. It was to serve them. And because of this, elsewhere in other communities, Paul did have the right as an apostle to demand that the churches support him, right, by giving tithes. But Paul says he didn't do that in Thessalonica. We don't know why he didn't do that in Thessalonica, what the circumstances were. But he says he worked night and day so that he wouldn't have to burden the community of Thessalonica with having to provide for him. He wanted to offer the gospel free of charge. And Jesus talks about that too, right? Um, you know, those who receive without pay, give without pay. But at the same time, we also know through Acts and other Paul's, Paul's other writings that uh, as apostles, he had the right to demand at least um, support from the community. So that way he could preach the good news without having to worry about working. Uh, similar to what, what priests do in parishes, right? So um, not that priests make hardly any money. Uh, but they make enough to pay off like if they have some student debts from seminary um, and like for food and their car kind of thing, right? Uh, but they don't make very much money, but but the, their parish, their congregation provides for their needs. 
because they don't have to do anything outside of working at the parish to proclaim the good news. So, and just a beautiful, just paternal. I mean, just this letter is just, like I said in the very first one, just there's so much familial language here. Uh, verse uh, 11, for you know how like a father with his children. So he was a, a mother at one point. Now he's a father, different analogy. Uh, now he's a father. Uh, we exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And this, this, there's a few things, just two things I want to end with today. Like a father. I'm not about to give a whole spiel or a whole talk on like the father wound or anything like that. But I think, not, not I think, I know that those with bad relationships with their fathers would instantly not think too highly of Paul reading this verse. Or if they did, maybe they're doing their best to imagine what a good father might be like. But what's a good father? A good father, according to Paul right here, exhorted each one of you, so incur told you the right and the wrong and asked that you live it, encouraged you when you needed it, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So, and this is just what, what makes a good father. A good father exhorts his children to live virtuous life and corrects them as needed. He also encourages them when they fail, when they mess up. And when they're trying and they're growing, but they're just not quite there yet, he encourages them. But lastly, he gives them a duty. He charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God. To walk. It's a, it's a, that's a present progressive, right? It's a, you're currently doing it right now. You're walking in a manner worthy of God. Why? Because God has called you into his own kingdom and glory. His own kingdom and glory. God has called you, my brothers and sisters, and calls me to walk in a manner worthy of God. And you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're called to stand up, go to confession, get back on your feet, and continue to lead a holy life worthy of the divine gift you were given at your baptism and that you receive on Sunday in the Eucharist, in the name of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit dwelling in our soul. Just last thought here. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. One, Paul very, very rarely mentions the kingdom of God. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, talk about almost nothing but the kingdom of God. Paul doesn't talk too much about it. This is one of the few verses he, he talks about it. But the, what is the, the glory of God? This word doxa, glory. In kavod in Hebrew, what was the ancient kind of interpretation of, of that word? Well, the, the word in Hebrew actually comes from the same word for weight, for weightiness, for reality. So one was more glorious when they held more weight, when their words impacted reality. So think of a king. If a king said, you are in prison, then his words affected your reality. Namely, that means you were going to prison. Even when, uh, you know, some, like, like today, um, not, this is, I'm not trying to get political here, just an example. When a police officer comes up to you and says, 
you are under arrest. His words just impacted your reality. Namely, going back to the ancient king example, when a king says, when they make a covenant saying, you are my son, when the king adopts you, his words just impacted and affected your reality. So to be glorious is to have weightiness to your being and to your words. You are more real. You are more glorious. God being the most glorious. Namely, when he spoke, creation came into existence. When he spoke, light was made. When he spoke, the earth came into being. And when he spoke your soul into existence, you were born in your mother's womb. He calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And his kingdom is for you and me to dwell eternally with him, his son, and the Holy Spirit and to live in their glorious reality. So a lot more can be said about that, but I wanted to, I, th- I just love that last, last, last verse. Um, so once again, thanks for joining us, Catholics with Bibles, and I'll see y'all next time. As always, guys, I want to keep talking, and I can talk over and over and over and over and over again, uh, but I also love keeping this podcast uh, bite-sized, tangible, something you can listen to in a quick car, uh, 30-minute car ride. And so if you're finding these Bible studies on uh, First Thess- uh, Thessalonians useful, helpful, give us a review, give us a share. If you have any questions, love to, for you to reach out to me. You can reach out to me, talk to me anytime, any place. Um, once again, thank you for joining us with Catholics with Bibles, and I will see y'all next week. God bless.